Well, friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited about this episode. Our guest today is Associate Professor of Theology at Earlham School of Religion. She's the author of 15 books and an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. Please help me welcome Grace Jisun Kim. Grace, welcome to Halfway There. Oh, thank you so much, Eric, for having me. It's wonderful to be on, and I am looking forward to the conversation that we'll be having this yeah, day. Me too. You have a new book out, and we're going to talk about that, and I'm excited to uh, kind of dig into some of those issues. I, as I've been reading it, it's definitely challenging some of the some of the places that, that I've been, and I like that. I think that's a good thing. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. That was the point of writing the book that <laughs> yeah. we will challenge. Yeah, it is co-written with Dr. Graham Hill, who teaches in Australia. So um, I'm glad that you found it a bit challenging. That's what that's our hope for yeah. the readers today. I think that's a good thing. We'll get to that, but I want to hear more about you. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're doing now. I gave a little brief introduction, but go ahead and fill in some gaps there. Okay, sure. Um, as you uh, mentioned, my name is Grace Jisun Kim. I, I was born in Korea, and in the 70s, our family um, immigrated to Canada. And in Canada, um, as an immigrant, um, you know, with many immigrant communities, um, you try to find each other and find a community. And that's when we began to go to church. Uh, we found a community at the church. Uh, we weren't Christians before we immigrated. But um, soon after, we decided, well, my parents and me as a kid, we found a lot of friends. So we began to go to church in Canada. So I kind of grew up in the church and um, did all my schooling up in Canada from kindergarten all the way up to my PhD program. And then in 2004, um, I immigrate. Well, not immigrate. We, I guess so. Yeah, we uh, moved to the U.S. So oh, yeah. uh, I brought my family here and uh, we've been living here in the U.S. since 2004. So as you mentioned, I teach theology at um, Earlham School of Religion, which is a Quaker-based um, seminary, okay. uh, and I am a ordained Presbyterian uh, Church PCUSA um, minister. And um, in my spare time, I like to read and write, so um, I'm glad we'll be discussing this uh, book, um, Healing Our Broken Humanity. It's my 15th book, and it was a joy to co-write it with uh, Professor Graham Hill, who teaches in Australia. So it's a wonderful collabor collaboration. You know, it's not always easy to co-write a book together because everything needs to be negotiated. But this was a joy. We had a similar vision. Um, there was uh, a message that we wanted to get across. So it was a, a joy to write this book together with them. Yeah, I think that's great. So what I'm seeing, we'll, we'll get into the book in a minute, but what, what, I, uh -huh. what I'm seeing in the United States is the current political climate is very interesting for evangelicals. Yes. And so it, you speak into that a little bit. We'll talk, we'll talk about that. So I'm doing a lot Most of teasing. Interesting. That's why I actually find, you know, that the book is so relevant because the political climate yeah. and around the world too, because of what happens in the U S has all this ripple effects. So it, you know, yeah. the climate, the political climate is very, very interesting. I think the book addresses that. In yeah, different ways. Absolutely. But I think it's it's also a faith-based, you know, it's a it's a book about how the Bible challenges us to be different, which is is gonna be unique. So we'll we'll talk about that. But I want to hear more about your story. So you moved from Korea to Canada as as a child. And then um so and you found community in the church. I find that really interesting. I think that's kind of a kind of a cool way to get connected. Sometimes we undervalue the, the our communities and uh, that's providing a lot of uh, a lot of things people need. So it sounds like you found that there. Mm -hmm. Tell me yeah. about like how did your faith become your own as you were growing up in the church? So um, you know finding community in the church and uh, finding it fun to actually go to church because um, it was just my parents, my older sister and I, we had no other relatives who immigrated to Canada. So we were very lonely, um, just our nuclear family. So um, growing up in the church, I had lots of questions, uh, a lot of questions about the Bible, the authority of the Bible, a lot of questions about who I am and what my calling is in life. So I carried those questions with me and uh, when I was um, 
I guess just finished grade 10, which is uh, finishing sophomore here in the U.S. Um, I grew up in a small city, London, Ontario, which is mostly a white kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, mm-hmm. city and um, about two and a half hours away from Toronto. So after finishing grade 10, our parents um, decided to move to Toronto, which is very multicultural, a much larger city. And, um, you know, I didn't want to move. I was kicking and screaming and I was going to live in um, London with my friend while my parents and my sister was going to move off to Toronto. I didn't welcome the change, but I had no choice. So we moved and we started going to a new church in, in London. I mean, in Toronto, another Korean church. So in London, it was a Korean church. And then in in um, Toronto, it was another Korean church. And at that church, there was a youth pastor, uh, Reverend Han, um, who kind of helped me in my uh, walk and all the questions that I had. He didn't provide the answers, but he kind of... Um, cleared the way for me to keep asking and that it was okay to ask and that we don't have all the answers. So, uh, you know, during my teens, it was very um, an important time of searching uh, for who is God and how does God um, inform me and struggling with what my calling in life was. So from 16 till I went to university, um, I was really struggling a lot and trying to make sense of my faith. Um, in my other books and in my other writings, you know, I blog a lot and I write for different avenues like Sojourners and Feminist Studies and Religion, so different places. I do share um, the difficulties of growing up in a in a mostly white um, mm, yeah. society, so facing the racism out in society. And then in the church, you know, it, it wasn't all all rosy. Um, there are some difficulties. And I think in many churches, and in particular, the Korean churches, uh, we faced sexism. So those were the two kind of big things that kind of pushed me and challenged me in my faith. You know, what does it mean to experience racism in the wider society? And what does it mean to uh, experience sexism within the church? So, you know, those things kind of um, informed um, how I understand who God is in my life and and in the world, and challenge my own struggles and, and my own understanding of faith. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's a lot to deal with any time, especially as a as a teenager. Uh huh. Um, did you ever have like a like a moment? You don't. If not, it's okay. Um, not everybody does, but I'm curious about it. Did you ever have a moment where you had to like? where God was really either especially present to you or kind of broke through and, and you, you gave your life to him at all or. Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up in the church in, in London, because it's a smaller community during the summers, we would go to Toronto to different church retreats and different church camps because the church that I, I was growing up in London was very small. And then when we eventually moved to Toronto, um, you know, I continued to go to the different retreats um, and summer camps. Uh, they're organized by my church that I was attending or different churches. And it was during one of those um, camps that I really um, experienced God's presence in my life. It was very, very clear and um, kind of an undeniable understanding that God uh, was real and in present, uh, present. Um, and you know, at that time I did give my life oh, to yeah. God and I asked God to use me. And, and when I was younger, when I was like 10 or 11, when I was figuring out what to do with the rest of my life, I thought mm-hmm. I could be like a nurse and be like a missionary with my sister across the ocean somewhere. And that, you know, kind of changed over the time, but yeah. still this kind of desire to serve God in a different way. And in my later teens, trying to figure that out. So, yeah, there were these moments, uh, you know, that was one moment. But there were other moments in my life where, you know, I really felt the presence of God Mm. and that, you know, God is real and and is part of my life. So there were many, but that one particular camp was where, you know, I decided to give my life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, I used to be a little cynical about church camp having gone to them my whole life, right? Uh-huh, but man, uh-huh. I, I realized, you know, and there's there's a common experience where people, you know, 
have these sort of conversion experiences every summer, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. you know, I went to so many, yeah. even as a little kid, but then I have three kids and I didn't send them to too many. It's also the social location. You know, I'm living in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So um, the church that, you know, I raised my kids and it was a Korean American church is very tiny. So they, they didn't really hold these retreats mm-hmm. or camps. So that was kind of unfortunate. But, um, you know, I did send them to a few uh, for other churches and other kind of greater uh, area churches, like larger churches. So, but they, you know, my kids didn't have the same kind of church or camp experience as myself. So I feel like I've kind of cheated them out of that experience. Well, I can only do what I can do. Of course, of course. Yeah, there's, you know, there's something really valuable about about it though, right? Like I can't tell you how many people have told me, oh, I found Christ at at church camp. And that, Uh you know, I went in thinking I was just going to have fun. And then, you know, I gave my life to him, you know, so that, that happens uh, a lot. And so I don't, like, I, I love that. Okay. So how did you get into theology? Well, that's a very interesting question. I keep asking myself today, too. Um, so, in my teens and the youth pastor that I had, you know, I was, it was like, it was a big torture for me to figure out mm. uh, what my calling is. I don't think other people experience that kind of feeling. They just, they like a certain subject in school and then they will study that in university or college. But for me, it was this struggle of, what is God calling me to do? And the youth pastor was very helpful. Uh, one of my books, Intercultural Ministry, I ended up dedicating that book to him. He was shocked. But I said, you know, because he helped me so much. Yeah. Because in my struggle, and he was, you know, also encouraging me to figure out um, what God is calling me to do. So during my undergrad studies, I studied the I didn't study theology. I studied psychology mm. at the University of Toronto, and I belonged to the Presbyterian Church in Canada, which is a sister pres- sister denomination of the PCUSA here in the United States. And um, there's a, a diaconal ministry kind of college called York College, which has now kind of um, amalgamated with Knox College, which is the denom- denominational uh, seminary. Okay. So you were college because it was smaller. They just put them together after like maybe about 15 years ago. So that was after I finished studying. So at you were college. I got a diploma in Christian education. So I did that simultaneously with my uh, BSc degree in psychology. So it was just a way for me to kind of discern, um, do I want to study theology further? Um, I got a, you know, a good dosage of um, studying scripture, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, and theology, and then religious education. So I thought, you know, I while I was doing that uh, simultaneously with my um, psychology degree, I still wasn't sure uh, whether I should study theology or not. I was kind of torn. Um, I really liked psychology and I still do. I think it's a very fascinating field. Something, you know, if I had another life, maybe I would, or if I had time, study more. Yeah. So it was a time of discernment. And then um, near the end of my um, undergrad degree, I decided, okay, I'll just try theology. I felt maybe there was a pull uh, from God, uh, God's calling for me to study theology. So I enrolled at Knox College, which is the Presbyterian Seminary um, in Toronto. And even in the seminary, you know, I struggled. Is this really God's calling? So every day (laughs) or when I think about my youth, uh, my studies, uh, undergrad and seminary, it's a consistent it's a constant struggle of, is this what God's calling me to do? Mm. You know, theology is not an easy area, so I found it very difficult. Uh, I have really super smart uh, seminary classmates who I'm still um, in touch with. You know, I felt they were so smart, and I didn't know whether I quite understood it. But, you know, I finished the degree, and, uh, you know, I felt called to uh, be ordained, but I put that off, and I said, I will study theology, which was for the PhD degree, yeah. uh, because I had all these unleft um, questions that I really wanted to tackle. You know, who is God? Um, you know, how do we experience God in this world? Um, so many unleft questions of, you know, how do how are women supposed to be in the church? 
And what do we deal with the racism that we experience in the wider society? So that kind of led me to study theology. And, you know, I finished my uh, PhD degree in 2001. So that's almost 20 years ago. And I'm still struggling. (laughs) And I think that's why in my struggles, like I write, uh, you know, blogs or the books to kind of help myself understand too in the process. Uh, Because I always feel I'm not, I can't be the only one uh, struggling with these questions. Um, these theological questions. So I kind of tried to write them out so that others will be either challenged or moved or help others understand um, their own struggles in theology. Was the struggle to commit to theology as a study, as an area of study, was it, was it just, you know, that you had the questions or was it also partly the, um, like, was there more to it? I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, so, uh, sexism in the church and things like that. I mean, that's kind of a, and I know that that when I was in seminary, that was kind of a interesting interplay between the men and women. Uh, sometimes I don't know if that was, was part of it. Did you feel like you weren't allowed to study theology as a woman or was it something um, I else? Don't know if the question of allowed um, is the right word, but I know um, it wasn't as welcomed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it wasn't as welcomed. And, you know, I struggle. I, I did struggle a lot during the seminary years uh, because there were these Korean uh, Canadian pastors who kept telling me um, that I should get married and have children. You know, uh, studying theology wasn't that important. You know, I thought, I think those thoughts were very, very hurtful and damaging to me. I don't think these male pastors, um, even probably till this day, 20-something years later, understand how sexist those comments were and hurtful. Um, Because for me, you know, I ended up then getting married and have three children. But, you know, why is it that you could only do one, not the other? You know, why are, are women supposed to stay home and get married and have kids? Well, as men are not expected to do that. so. I just thought it wasn't just one minister. There were many, and there were other classmates who felt the same way that I shouldn't be studying theology. It's not that important for a woman to do it. It's more important that women get married and have children. So, and I know, you know, now in 2018, and, you know, 20 something years later, people, there's a lot of people who feel like that in the churches um, right. and faith communities that, uh, you know, because there are biblical passages of woman be silent, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, it was very hard for me to struggle with that. And I think that those struggles kind of led me to ask a, the critical theological questions of a uh, woman's role in the church. And, um, you know, what is the difference between men and women? Um, how do we treat one another? Um, you know, those are the questions that keep, coming up in in my writing and in my books. So as damaging as it was for me when people um, did make those comments to me, uh, on the brighter side, it kind of pushed me to ask those questions and try to uh, make sense of my faith in my theological journey. Uh, Because, you know, on one hand, I feel called by God um, to study theology and be a minister and, and teach theology. How do I reconcile that with a culture that says otherwise and and wants to dismiss me? Yeah. See, that's what I think is really interesting. That struggle of, okay, this is what I feel like God's calling me to. And yet I'm, you know, the community around me, because community has been very important for you, right? But the community Uh around me is not saying the same thing. And so what, what do I do? Yeah. Um, and you clearly overcame that. What What was sort of the, like, what did you come to? We don't have to go into the whole, you know, I know that, that that's a, that's a topic we could spend hours talking about, but uh-huh. what's your conclusion about, you know, women's role in the church? Obviously you, you know, you, you finished. Um, but how did you, how did you overcome that with your theological conclusion? Well, I have no, I had no choice of how I'm going to be born. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think we have no say in this and we are born in this way. If God loves all people, um, 
whatever ethnicity and um, culture that we're born into, God must love both man and woman equally. So it was a uh, you know rereading the scripture and understanding um, why these certain uh, passages are written in, in in Paul's letters and um, other contrary passages um, in the scriptures. So you know, trying to discern, and I know women are still struggling with this today. You right. think um, in this day and age where we are, uh, we feel like we've kind of uh, overcome many of these um, sexism or even in the struggles in our society, but it's still not true. Women are, are not paid equally. Women are not treated as equals. There are so many um, things. And even in the church, Presbyterians, uh, the PCUSA, at least we ordain women, but there are so many other denominations that don't ordain women. When I think about and read, you know, as a theologian, I, I, I turn to scripture. Scripture is very clear that, that Jesus welcomed women. Um, Jesus uh, was with women. He, he taught women. Um, you know, he welcomed the Samaritan woman. He had a conversation with her. You know, at that time and age, Samaritans were despised. You weren't supposed yeah. to engage with them. But this was a Samaritan woman, and he asked for water. You know, he challenged these um, the status quo and what people were trying to set out that women were lesser. He was trying to break that down. When the sinful woman came to anoint Jesus his feet, he said, you know, in memory of her, the story will be shared. And mm. we continue to share that story and how powerful that is. When we think about um, the first apostles, you know, when we think about Jesus' resurrection, you know, it was a woman that came and it was a yeah. woman that ran out to, to share the good news with the male disciples. So it's very clear. And, you know, God created all human beings, men and women. Uh, we're all equal in God's sight. So I think that's uh, something that needs to be taught and retaught and, and preached on and yes. written about to kind of share to people of faith and outside the people of faith that women are valuable and God used women and God continues to use women. So, um, you know, I think it's very clear in scripture. So I just hope that those um, listeners and those who are still kind of wanting um, to kind of put women aside or dismiss women, that women uh, should be valued. When I think about Paul's letter, that in particular, that a lot of people like to use, men and women like to use about women be silent. You know, I raised three kids and you know how loud kids are. <laughs> right. You never <laughs> tell them to be quiet unless they're loud and noisy, right? If they're all quiet in a room reading, you would never go into the room and say, oh, be quiet. You only say it as a parent if they're yeah. noisy. And when I think about Paul, Paul's writing to these churches who are being, you know, there's so much brokenness. People are fighting. People don't know how to deal with this. You know, these house churches were being built and it was spreading. So Paul is writing these letters specifically to different churches um, to overcome some of the problems that were occurring. So the woman be silent. I'm sure the church that he was addressing, because women were teaching, women were teaching all over the place. So to kind of bring peace into that church, he felt probably he needed to say something. And, he, you know, we've kind of taken that passage and said, for all time, women be silent. But, you know, we have to see the cultural context in which he wrote those letters, yes. what was the reason behind it? Um, is it for us today or was it specifically for that church who was having so many difficulties and so many problems? So, you know, I always like to address that passage because there are so many people who want to use that passage to silence me and other women in the church and in the faith community. Yeah, I love that. You know, for me, one of the things that really, one of the passages that really changed my mind is in Ephesians 5, you know, which is sort of tangentially related, I guess, because it's the, you uh -huh. know, it's wives and husbands. But when I realized that the break there is, is not helpful, you know, that the verse before that is actually this, the heading that says, submit yourselves to one another. And then yeah. in the next verse, and it says, wives submit to your husbands. It doesn't actually say submit there. It says wives to your husbands. And then husbands love your wives later. And that, that they're all, they're actually, it's a bullet pointed list of these are examples of how you submit to one another. Yeah. It's not just um, wives submit to your husbands. 
oh, that was a light bulb, right? Because then now all of a sudden the scripture has illuminated what, you know, what's actually happening there and that it's not just, you know, wives should submit. I think that happens a lot with scripture with these other passages like you're like you're talking about. They've been interpreted for us in a very patriarchal way. Um, and so we have to kind of allow ourselves to take those off that off a little bit and then and see what was actually happening there. And uh, and I think that will open the way for for a lot more um, interaction. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, well, so well, thank you for sharing all that because I think there are a lot of people who struggle with it, um, either oh, yeah. on either I, side. I, as I speak in different church settings, people are still struggling with it. Yeah. And you, I would have thought that by now, you know, we've overcome the struggle, but <laughs> right. I think we will continue to struggle with this for a long time. Yeah. Well, don't tell anybody, but. I'm really hopeful that at my church we'll have a woman preach sometime soon. I hope that. that <laughs> oh, well, invite me. I don't know where, which That'd city you're in. But I'm in Denver. Feel free to invite me anytime. <laughs> well, there we go. Where All are right. you? Yeah, yeah, it's good. But uh, I hope I hope that that's. Uh, I'm not. I was an elder for about six years, and uh, uh-huh. you know, I had raised that question a few times. And eventually, the right the right time will come. But it'll. I hope so. It'll be good. <laughs> so. Um, well, that's great. So thank you for sharing all that again. The, so I want to know a little bit more. Have you ever had like a, like a dark night of the soul or a time when you felt like God was far away or? Uh, oh, I've had many of those. Yeah. Tell, um, tell me about one of those and experiences. I think that's part of our faith journey, uh, the dark night of the soul. So I struggled particularly, I remember in my undergrad and, and in my MDiv studies, um, even though I felt called by God, this huge, kind of darkness and feeling that God was not with me, you know, mm. crying out in prayer and in desperation, um, asking God to help me and feeling so alone. So I think that is part of our journey. And I know people go through it, go through similar um, experiences and, and, and those times people do want to fall away from their faith, but I would encourage the listeners that it is really those times that we continue to, to cry out to God and, and seek God and not um, and not lose sight of God because God is always present. So I would like to encourage your listeners. Oh yeah, that I appreciate that you said it's normal because I think it is, and I think a yeah. lot of us um, question, begin to question our maturity. But the reality is, spiritual maturity is on the other side of the of the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Of yeah. the dark night. How did God bring you out of that? How did how did He, you know, bring you bring you back into? A feeling um, of his presence. I think um, some of it is the peace that God gives you. So, you know, for days I would cry out because um, for various reasons, um, experiences that I was having. But I think um, God does eventually uh, bring peace and bring you out of that darkness. So, you know, that challenges uh, many of us that we need to be patient, that um, God is still listening and God is always present. Even though we feel that God is so far away and not listening, that God is always present and we just need to be open and um, kind of allow God to kind of move our lives. Yeah. Yeah. We have to go to him and bring those things to him. I find uh-huh. that um, in Habakkuk it just makes me so excited. Like just, it's an interesting interplay with God, right? Where, he was upset with God, but he, he took it to the Lord. And that's where we get the righteous will live by faith, right? So I think that's mm-hmm. one of the definitions of faith. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, so you, you've been you've been a writer and you're, you're writing all these books. I want to get to this book uh, because it, it is so interesting and challenging. And we, we teased it a little bit earlier. The book is called Healing Our Broken Humanity, Practices for Revitalizing the Church and Renewing the World by you and Graham Hill. Um, so the, like I said, this is a little bit challenging because the, the climate that we're in definitely is kind of confusing for, for evangelicals. Tell us about why you wrote this book and how, how it speaks into that climate. Okay. So, um, Grant and I have been talking to each other for a while about a possible book because we both felt like we wanted to kind of work with each other. Um, you know, this is my 15th book I've written, co-written, I think, um, two other books, one with my daughter called uh, Mother Daughter Speak, and another with my friend, um, Dr. Joseph Che, uh, Theological Reflections on Gangnam Style. Before that, um, I also co-edited a few books with other people 
uh, co-writing is always a challenge, but Graham and I, we kind of clicked and we wanted to kind of co-write a book. And I didn't come up with a topic he did. He said, Joe, do, do I want to write on this topic? And I said, yes. So um, off we went after he kind of introduced the topic to us. We found it was very relevant for our time. There is so much brokenness and brokenness um, occurs in so many different ways. You know, we list some of the brokenness that we find in our society, but, you know, the list is uh, not total. You know, we can't list everything and the publishers said our lists are too long. So we had to cut down the list, (laughs) but there is this brokenness. And I think some of us recognize its brokenness. Some of us don't. So that's why we needed still some list of kind of how we as individuals or we as a church or we as a society are broken. So that's how kind of we came up with um, writing this on this topic. And I think, you know, it's so important for us to kind of recognize the different sins or different brokenness that we are part of or that we contribute to or that we experience so that we can then come out of this brokenness and become a new human being, a new church, and a new faith community. So the book wants to kind of challenge us in this way so that we can recognize this and what are the different steps that we can take to heal ourselves and heal each other and heal our communities and our churches. Yeah, I like that. So what what are some of the things that some people or that we I guess maybe we need to recognize as brokenness that you because one of the things you said there was, you know, there are there's some 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 of us recognize it as brokenness and some of us don't. So there's some of those things that we need to know. So tell us about that. Well, some of them are, you know, I the brokenness then I'll just name as sin because sometimes um, we're right to call kind of name them as sin but you know racism is a sin and you know when we think about our society the american society it was built on racism yeah um sojourners who's the president of sojourners um jim wallace he has the book that came out a few years ago america's original sin and he tackles racism but when we think about um here the u.s it was a natives that lived here and um, the white settlers mm. came and, you know, a whole genocide of the native Americans that lived here thousands of years. And after that, we have slavery um, of Africans. And after the, well, as the slavery is going on, um, the, the workers from Asia, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and also from India, they came as indentured workers. Um, these workers, so many people died um, building the railroad and even in the mining. So many thousands and thousands died. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody felt their lives were important. They came with a huge debt um, to the employees, um, the employers. So they could never pay back the debt. So many of these workers came um, thinking that they'll make enough money and send money back home and then eventually go back home to Asia. So many couldn't leave because of the system that was set up, the indentured workers. So, um, you know, many of them lost their lives. Many of them could not pay back the debt that they incurred by coming here. So, you know, this is all racism and and the racism still exists today. So I think we uh, uh, living in the U.S., really need to challenge that and and name it as sin. You know, the other sins mm. are the sexism, treating women as less and doing what we want with women. You know, with the Me Too movement, yeah. you know, so many are recognizing the damage that women have experienced. So that needs to stop. And that has occurred in our churches. And now, you know, the ministers are being challenged, those who participated in those um, sexual um, assault or um, deviations. So, and, you know, there are so many, I think when we think about the global society, how we kind of participate in this um, climate change, how we are part of this by polluting and damaging the world, you know, this is all God's creation. And in some way, we kind of misinterpret the creation passages that we can kind of dominate the world. We cannot dominate. We were called to be stewards of the world, of the earth and God's creation. But in a sense, we're damaging. And when we think about the the climate that's changing here in the U.S. and around the world, you know, the severe typhoon and, and the hurricanes that have battered us recently, 
we need to wake up and realize we cannot continue to pollute and damage the world. We are to be caretakers and stewards. So those are some of the brokenness that we uh, are yeah. participating in and that we are experiencing. So I really do want to challenge them. And the list goes on and on and on, but those are just to name a few um, to say that we really need to stop participating in these and we really need to change our ways, change our thinking, change our practices so that mm. we can bring healing um, to each other, to this planet and to our churches. Yeah. And I love that. So that's, what's great about this book is you guys uh, write about different practices to kind of help us overcome it. And you really set it up as a, even a small group resource that you can, yeah. you can go through. Mm-hmm. And many of the chapters have an appendix um, um, at the end that you can kind of pull out and try to answer and work on these questions, um, sometimes in groups or by individuals. So um, that's set up so that after each chapter, you can kind of uh, kind of live it out or or feel how you can live out that particular topic. So there's nine chapters, nine particular topics. You know, we could have gone on and on and on, but we, you know, then that'll be like a 3000 page book. Right. To limit the book. We have these nine practices and for your listeners and for those who haven't read the book, I'll just kind of quickly uh, name the nine so that people will re- recognize what the book is trying to cover. Great. So it begins by uh, reimagine church, renew lament, repent together, relinquish power, restore justice, Reactivate hospitality, reinforce agency, reconcile relationships, and recover life together. So those are the um, nine chapters. We began them all with uh, the letter R to help us kind of remember them. But, uh, you know, we could have had added more. But those were the nine kind of important things that we wanted to cover to kind of move from this brokenness into healing. Yeah. Can we just dive into two or three of them? Oh, sure. And just talk yeah. about that. All right. So what I'd love to do is uh, like, let's start with laments because this is one of my, one of my things that I, I wish the church did better. And it's sort of a crucial um, step in kind of bringing reconciliation. And so, you know, you talk about lament as, um, you know, a thing that, that we have, that we need to, we have to acknowledge what's going on. That we can't uh-huh. move forward without without into hope and peace until we've gone through that. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so to say briefly, um, and you can read the whole thing in the chapter, <laughs> chapter two. Lament is a practice um, that the Hebrew people had had um, had experienced and practiced in their own faith. Um, community. Um, We have the Book of Lamentations. But I think as Christians today, we have kind of forgotten this practice of lamenting. Lamenting is really crying out to God and um, understanding the wrongs that we have done and crying out and kind of seeking God in our lives. And we don't do that as much uh, and we don't do that uh, corporately. Like in our churches on Sunday morning, I'm very used to the Presbyterian churches because I preach at a Presbyterian church most Sundays. We do have the time of, um, you know, opening praise, prayer of confession, um, you know, reading the Bible and listening to the sermon, but there's really no time of lamenting. And I think as a community, we need to be reminded that we do need to lament and cry out to God because that's one of the steps that need to happen to kind of move us towards hope. So, um, you know, I think it's very necessary step uh, before we get into the repentance and healing and wholeness and, and the hopefulness that God gives us. So I hope that once people, um, practice lament that it will be part of a regular practice at the end of that chapter we do give um examples of that uh, that i wrote and, oh, yeah. and Graham wrote and we encourage others to kind of write their prayers of lament or crying out to god yeah i thought that was great scripture has a really rich tradition of lament oh yes uh-huh. and we've kind of forgotten that yeah and i think you know for those who are so biblically um, based uh, faith communities and individuals, we kind of skip over these lamentations and help the people, um, the Israelites had cried out to God. So I think it's a good reminder for us to kind of go back into um, these texts, um, these scriptural passages, and see what um, how how people lamented. You know, you can find them all over the Old Testament in the Psalms, um, in 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 lamentations and mm-hmm. etc. So I think it should be a regular part of our Christian practice. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually one reason I asked the question about the dark night of the soul. Uh, uh, yeah. Because uh-huh. 
these are things that we need to kind of bring back. We need they need yeah. to be mm-hmm. part of part of what we understand the experience of being a Christian is like. Yeah. Um, so I think repent or mm-hmm. lament is one of those. Yeah, and I think another thing is um, people may kind of have gone through lamenting, but because it's such a lost part of our tradition, they may not have even called it lament because we've forgotten what oh, it yeah. means to lament. But people may be already doing it as individuals or or as faith communities. But I think we've kind of lost this vocabulary of lament and we don't use it in our liturgy or in our regular practice on Sunday. But I think, um, you know, tied in with the dark night of the soul, we do kind of go through this. We just kind of forgot to name it or fail to name it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I like that. Um, okay, so how about the other one that I thought was really fascinating is relinquished power. So this is one of those that, you know, we've got great examples, particularly of Jesus, right? Giving up, pouring himself out, as it says in, in uh, Philippians. Um, but so t- talk to us about that. that for, for some of us, like this is an interesting conversation to have between you and me, right? So as a white yeah. guy, right? It's, <laughs> it, I'm, I have to be not only open to the fact that uh, I have, have been privileged in some ways that I'm not even aware of uh, that that you had to overcome some of those same things. So what, t- talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So um, um, thank you for uh, bringing this topic up because <laughs> I think it's an important topic and we see this being played out in our wider political society here in the U.S. under President Trump. Uh, you know, Graham Hill um, is a white man white male professor, and he realizes the amount of power that he has, too, as a white man, and the and the white privilege that comes with it. And, you know, he really struggles with it. And how do we give up this power that is somehow thrown, a, thrown to us by society? Because uh, white privilege White privilege is there. We cannot deny it. Male privilege is there. We cannot deny it. I think we need to name it and understand the power that each of us kind of hold in different ways. Mm-hmm. But being a white male has kind of like the most power. So here, you know, Graham understands that if he wants to kind of give up that power, and that's a very biblical kind of understanding because we see this with um, the life and example of Jesus. Jesus gives up his power, comes to us in this earth, in this broken world to kind of help us and save us and show us the way. So it's already a very biblical kind of understanding of relinquishing, giving up our personal gain and power, you know, our desire to have more power. You know, as human beings, we kind of desire power. And once you have power, you want more power. Mm-hmm. So kind of giving up the selfish um, ambition and status and privilege so that we can raise other people up. So, you know, Graham begins with his own experiences, but then even myself, you know, as a woman of color, still my status as a professor, there is some power um, attached to it. So how do we share those power that is given to us either by society or by default? And how do we build each other up? I think that's an important step. You know, a lot of women, we talk about, um, empowering one another and so as we kind of relinquish this power give up some of the the status that we have how can then we um kind of give that power to other people uh embrace the power that we felt on the cross and the resurrection Mm. that jesus gave up his life you know that is the prime example for us christians today so i hope that the readers will find that challenge, that chapter challenging. And if they find themselves on the side of the privileged, how then can they give up that privilege so that they can build uh, other people up? Yeah, I love that. I think the idea of just number one, being aware of, uh-huh, of the privilege yes. is super important. Um, uh-huh. You know, I'll tell you a story. I've shared this maybe before on the show, but like I never had thought of that before as a, like of the structural issues that, that turn up until and uh-huh. I went to Denver seminary. We did this class that was a, an immersion and I did it with a guy named Jeff Johnson here in Denver. He runs a uh, inner city ministries here. And um, he, so I, it was like three weekends throughout the semester. He would take us down like all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday to these different neighborhoods and tell us stories and, and all this stuff. And one thing he pointed out, we were in one of the, poorer neighborhoods. And he, he pointed out, he goes, 
where do you see the grocery stores? Right? Where where do you see um or do you see any banks? And things like that, things that we just take I mean, I've got a bank within walking distance of where of where I am right now, right? And I could I could walk to the grocery store if I had to. Um, but things like that, like they're just, and, and I, I have my choice of, you know, mm-hmm. of many grocery stores or whatever I want. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd never even thought of that, but there's, there's ways that the structures of our society kind of um, prohibit that, or what do you, what do you, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, disincentivize the, the, the putting of banks and grocery stores in certain places. Yeah, Which, I know what you're talking well, about. Yeah, yeah. But, but then that's <laughs> an issue, right? Be- and how, how the city is organized. Yeah, yeah. right. Because then uh-huh. if you can't get access to good you know, produce, then you just yeah. eat the 7-Eleven or whatever. And that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So then we've got yeah. a whole cycle. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to recognize that some people don't have cars. Yeah. And, you know, to take the public transportation and carry all those groceries. You know, those are some of the things that we fail to recognize as uh, with all the privileges that we may be having. And, and that that's not their fault. Like, I think that's part of what, you know, the awareness brings, right? Because there's a lot yeah. of, okay, well, you're poor because you're not working hard. But that's, just, yeah. that's uh-huh. not necessarily true. Yeah, and it perpetuates the racism that it already exists. Right. Yeah. Right, totally. So that's some of the stuff that we need to give up. And to, yeah. and to you know, maybe what, maybe great practice is just befriend some people <laughs> that uh, are different than you. Yeah. Like, just uh-huh. start uh, start being being friendly. So I love that. Well, this this will go kind of in hand, hand in hand. Reinforcing agency. Tell tell us a little bit about about how we can do that. Okay, so um, reinforce agency is chapter seven, and so you know some of us have this agency to help. So we really want to kind of help people recognize that you know agency is something that um, not everyone has. This kind of drive to change the situation that they find themselves in. When we think about the Native Americans and how the genocide, you know, they were left without agency. So part of our task or part of the the role of this book is that there are many people that don't have this agency, this kind of um, power within to kind of change the situation that they find themselves in. So we want to kind of empower people to have this agency, to regain this agency, and that it is important for people to regain their agency, reinforce their agency, to kind of alter the change, alter the situation that they find themselves in. Um, agency's ability and the freedom to make unrestricted and independent choices. And we know that some people don't have that because of the built-in racism and the sexism that may exist either in the family system, in the church system, or in our wider society. So we want to challenge those people to kind of, uh, it's kind of tied in with the power chapter and mm-hmm. that we want to kind of give back the agency that people uh did not have. And, you know, he, uh, Graham lives in Australia. Um, if your listeners want to watch a really good film, it's called The Rabbit Proof Fence. It's not a documentary, but it's based on a true story and how even in Australia, um, the white government were rounding up the hybrid children. So those who were mixed white and their aboriginals and oh, they're wow. rounding them up. So they had no agency. They had no uh, ability to and the freedom to change the situation that they find themselves in. And that's very important. And even when we look at the Bible and when we look at scriptures, when we think, when we go back to the Exodus story and how God brought the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, you know, they did have this agency to, to have the freedom, but somehow God cares about the situation that one finds ourselves in. God wants to bring them out and God sends Moses and calls Moses to be a leader to bring them out of slavery. So I know sometimes we're so pious, we think, oh, as long as I am okay and just if I pray and I just think about myself, then that's fine. But we also have to think about the wider society, the context that we find ourselves in, because that's important because God also cared and God challenges and God wants to bring us out of horrible situations. And we see that in scripture over and over again. So I think uh, reinforcing agency is a very important thing that we as Christians kind of sometimes forget about or fail to do. Yeah. So it's not enough to just like say, okay, I'm going to give up my power. I have to, you have to empower also 
those who are underprivileged or uh, marginalized in some way. And we, we see Jesus do this, I think, in some really interesting ways. I've been hung up on um, Mark 1, where the, the leper comes to Jesus, uh-huh. and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And uh-huh. Mark says, Jesus was indignant, which I just love that word. Like, that just is so colorful to me. Because uh, he wasn't mad at the guy, you know, or the interruption in his day. He's clearly not. Uh-huh. And he says, he says, uh, you know, I'm willing, be clean. And he touches the guy, uh-huh. which is unhurt. You couldn't do that. Um, but I just love that interplay, the way that he, that this whole society had given him, had pushed him aside because of, uh-huh. you know, things beyond his control. Yeah. And Jesus gives him his life back, sends him to the priest to get, you know, to, uh-huh. to get declared yeah. clean. Like that's. It's not like this is a new thing or a radical thing or a liberal thing, right? It's a, it's uh-huh. a thing that the gospel is about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Very cool. Uh-huh. Wow. Yes. Okay, so the book is called Healing Our Broken Humanity, Practices for Revitalizing the Church and Renewing the World. Grace, thanks so much for being here. Friends, you can get the book and um, all the other books that... Grace has mentioned here, including a link to the the movie Rabbit Proof Fence. I put that in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com and uh, it's available at Amazon wherever you get books today. So Grace, thanks so much for sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so uh, fun to talk with you and I hope your listeners find it um, kind of helpful in their own journey and, and in their own faith journey. So I hope those who are interested will go out and buy the book. I hope that people, you know, we had the church in mind when we wrote it. And so we're hoping that churches kind of can use it in their small group or Bible study group or any kind of small group outside the church too. So I hope that people will find it useful and practical. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for your podcast. Yeah, I think they will. Thanks a lot. Thanks.